0: So the quick uh, introduction this morning is this. I was uh, was scheduled for um, some dental work. I hate the dentist, guys. I'm sorry. If you're related to a dentist or you are a dentist, I don't think anybody is. But uh, I hadn't been in a while. And so I had to get some dental work done on, like, Wednesday. So I was pretty well into my, my preparations for the sermon for this week. And it was um, the, the torture of sitting in the dentist chair that I had time to kind of reflect on what I was going to say this week. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, I cannot say this. And uh, why, did it, why did I feel that way? Well, I felt that way because uh, I felt that what happened last week was we, we kind of danced around. We did, like, a perimeter search of uh, the gospel and talked about what faith is not, and uh, I made a lot of qualifications on that, but then we didn't actually step in proper to, well, what is faith then? Because we were talking kind of about witnessing if you weren't here. And uh, so I was like, I kind of need to just push pause, make sure we're very explicit about this particular thing, what is faith and uh, why does it matter, that we just don't define that for ourselves. So um, before moving forward, uh, we're only gonna major on one verse this morning, <laughs> one verse. And, uh, and from that verse, I wanna kind of trace our steps from last week and uh, get to the heart of why is it so important that we don't just say that we believe something, but it actually means something uh, in our lives, and that faith actually constitutes a substance of something. So um, how many of you guys have actually visited, have visited Niagara Falls? You've been to it, seen it, beheld its glory? This is uh, Niagara Falls, which lies between America and Canada, yeah? In, uh, in the 1850s, there was a man named uh, Charles Blondin, and uh, he was famous for crossing uh, Niagara Falls on a tightrope. This is him uh, doing his thing in the, in the 1850s. And he crossed uh, many different ways. One time he did it in a sack. Another time he rode a bicycle across. Another time he did it on stilts. He even went out to the middle, carried a stove, cooked an egg, and, and ate it. So the guy's, the guy's okay at doing what he's doing, right? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's pretty good. Well, on, uh, on July 15th, 1859... Blondin made his way across the rope from America to Canada, pushing a wheelbarrow, blindfolded. Blondin arrived safely on the other side, and he asked the crowd if he had proven that he could cross. And the crowd, of course, shouted, yes, you did, right? Hooray, you did uh, did it. And so he asked if they believed that he could cross again with the wheelbarrow. And they asked, of course, you did it blindfolded, and you, you, you made it here. And he said, what if the wheelbarrow had a heavy load in it? And of course, uh, anticipating that they were going to see an even greater feat, than one that they had already saw, they became more excited and, and they shouted. They were very zealous for him to do this. And so they all loudly declared their endorsement that Blondin could accomplish this, this task. And so he asked again, do you believe that I could carry a person safely across in this wheelbarrow? And one man in the front shouted, yes, I believe. And he said, sir, will you get in the wheelbarrow? The man politely refused, <laughs> right? In fact, no one in the crowd who previously had shouted their belief in Blondin was willing to put their faith in him or the wheelbarrow or the trip across. Their belief in Blondin was essentially this, risk-free. It cost them nothing to declare their belief in it. But once it meant something personal, when it actually came to putting their faith where their belief was, uh, it, was it was an empty... Uh, an empty declaration. So faith requires action, and saving faith requires risk, and it costs something. In fact, it costs more than something. It costs everything, and that's foreign to our ears because we think, well, faith is a gift, and, and we can't earn it. And we, we can't buy it, and so how can it cost something? It costs everything, in fact. It's really important that we know what faith is and is not, and um, I think we get this muddled and confused because of the fact that maybe we've been presented with it a certain way. Or it's been so long since we were really presented with the truth of the gospel that we've forgotten what it meant to accept Christ in faith. And so um, the question I have before us this morning is how can we know God? And the answer to that is faith. So then we really need to know what is faith? What does faith actually mean? And the truth is, that faith is something you cannot do for yourself. It's a gift, and it, it does something inside of you that um, you're missing, and that's affection for God in a way that uh, you don't currently possess. And so I want to talk through that this morning by tracing the path that we got to that point last week in Acts chapter 7. So this morning, would you grab your Bibles? Um, it'll be up on the screen. I'm, I've, I told you it's only going to be one, uh, one verse, Acts chapter 7. And in verse 51. So let me pray. will ask God to uh, help me say things that are true and for you to hear things that he wants you to hear. Ready? God, I pray this morning that uh, you would be in our time gathered to hear your voice and your word. God, I pray that you keep me from any air, that you would speak only what uh, our ears need and what our hearts need. And I pray that... Um, The work you would do would be to call us away from um, a simple belief that is divorced from action. That you would call us to true faith that um, bids us to die and follow Jesus that we might have life. God, we pray that you would do this this morning for us because we can't do it for ourselves. So use your word to speak life to us. Prepare our hearts to do that, receiving what you would say, our ears to hear. She would speak in our eyes to see what's good and true and beautiful. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. I'll, uh, this was sort of the heart of um, Stephen's rebuke of all that he had said and the history of Israel. And he'd walked him through all, all the events and how they had constantly rejected the Redeemer and all of that. And he kind of lands on this uh, last statement. Saying this, you stiff-necked people, uh, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. And so he goes on to uh, to say, you guys have killed the prophets, and you killed even now the Christ. And um, and so the question uh, that we need to sort of walk through is this: How do we get from the problem that Stephen states, which is that they're resisting the Holy Spirit, and they're doing this for a reason? The reason why is because they have uncircumcised hearts. And so circumcision becomes a really important thing, how to define it and what it means, and um, it becomes integral to understanding how it is that we cannot resist the Holy Spirit. And so we had walked through that whole thing about being a witness. And then why? Sometimes when we witness, people don't hear the truth that we have to say, and people don't see what it is that uh, we, we bring. And uh, so we, we talked about them being blinded to that. And sometimes we're blinded because of um, devotion to a religious um, practice. And sometimes we're um, too in love with the things of this world and and sin. And so both of those things cloud our judgment, cloud our ability to see and hear what is true. And so um, circumcision becomes really important for us um, to define this. But uh, there was two kind of paths here that are laid before us that are, they they intrigue us, but they're not useful, right? And, And it was this, that knowing right things without faith cannot save you. And doing right things without faith cannot save you, right? You, you could go through the right protocols. You could do all the current actions that you seem to be fulfilling the list of rules, but without this important step, this important meaningful thing of faith, that's a useless exercise. And um, so this was sort of at the heart of the beginning of the perimeter. And so we, I, I majored on this, but we didn't say, well, so then what is, what does action look like that is enabled with faith? right? And the same thing with knowing and, and doing something. I'm sorry, I think I said doing before, but you get the idea, right? So doing right things without faith um, also cannot save. And so at, the, at the, uh, the bottom line of all of this was that the reason why that they were doing the thing that they had always done in the, the course of their history and the course of our history is uh, what Jesus says is that they don't know the Father and they don't know me. And this uh, then is echoed again when Jesus makes this rebuke in Matthew 7 about um, all those that will come. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And they're going to say all these things. Didn't we didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do all of these amazing things? And he'll say, depart from me, you doers. I never, what, knew you. And we said it's not a knowing of. It's a knowing in a relational sense. We have to, he has to know us in a relationship. And so simply knowing of God is not, uh, it's not enough. And then we have this other statement in, in Hebrews after Hebrews goes so far as to define faith, faith is uh, the substance of things that are hoped for, the assurance of things that aren't seen. And then later on, it goes on to say, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so if we know that without faith, it's impossible to please God, we really must know then what is faith? I must know what it is if I must have it to please God. And so um, the, the, the string of um, understanding what, what's required and how we can respond properly and doing it in faith uh, becomes important. I want you to see that in um, Jesus' rebuke in Matthew seven, that one where he says, "Lord, not everybody that calls me Lord." Um, he he covers both the 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 knowers and the doers in that. They, they they are declaring right things about who God is. Jesus is Lord. You're King. I'm I'm declaring you to be the one who's in charge of everything. Lord, Lord, and. Uh, Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not speak right things about you? Did we not say what is true? And uh, Jesus doesn't say that, no, you didn't say right things. No, you're not believing right things. And uh, then they go on to name all this list of things that they had done. So they are doing right things. And so the question uh, should be in your mind, then what is the separation between, why why is their knowing and doing not acceptable to Jesus? Why is there still a separation between him saying, no, I, I never knew you? And um, knowing and uh, doing without faith is that, that separating gap. And so um, I want to talk about first knowing things with faith and without faith and uh, how we separate those things. So uh, knowing something and believing something is not faith. Belief is not faith, but belief is required for faith. So we, we use those interchangeably. If I said, what is faith? You'd say, I, I don't know how you define it. But it includes something that you know to be true, or at least you are convinced of its truth, Right? And that in itself is belief. And so I don't want to separate the, the, the two words so much as to say there's no overlap, but they are not synonymous, as in they're interchangeable. Clearly, they're not interchangeable because the Jews believed right things about God, um, and that wasn't enough. So there's still, there's still a gap there between what, what is faith and what is belief. And so um, perhaps, like, there's, there's a lot of contributing factors, but I believe that most of everybody sitting here in the room has just been handed... A definition of faith that comes from just a muddled combination of revivalism, postmodern enlightenment thinking, where we, we can categorize belief as an independent value and separate it from our doing and being. I can believe something, but it doesn't necessarily impact or affect who I am or what I do. And for, for you, that doesn't maybe sound like a foreign concept, but it's it's foreign to the idea of what belief really is. And so, Um, This isolation or compartmentalization of knowing from doing is partially why we struggle to understand um, what faith is. And some have been told that putting trust in God merely means believing in Him. But that's the same as saying that your faith is in Santa Claus just as you believe in Him. And the truth of that statement is really not that useful to you anyway because even if you say, I believe in Santa Claus, it does not actualize that truth of that thing, does it? And so blind faith is is sort of um, out there as a, as a possibility, but I don't think that's um, what we're supposed to be after either. So the, um, the idea that um, we put our faith in something that we know is important, because faith must stem first from belief, but they're not synonymous, okay? And um, in James chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, uh, we have him being explicit about the problem of separating these values. That's saying, I believe something, but it doesn't really impact who I am or what I do. James chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, I'll just read it to you this morning. He says, some will say, you have faith and I have works. So he's contrasting here. um, He's having a fictitious conversation, a hypothetical conversation about somebody that says, look, I believe this thing. And, uh, and they're asserting it, and so here's the back and forth. You have faith, and I have works. And he asks, show me your faith apart from works, or doing something, right? And I will show you my faith by my works. Now, there's a whole another path we could go down, but I want you to see here that he's saying, uh, in 19, a very important statement, which is this. You believe that God is one, and you do well. So, so there is a belief that is a right belief. God... Hear, o Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. That is, that is an absolute truth. It's the fundamental of, of serving him. And he, he's, uh, James is affirming here, you believe that God is one, and so you do well in knowing that and believing that and holding fast to the truth of that. But then he goes so far as to say, even the demons believe that and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, foolish person, that a faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was then completed, or made whole, or found perfection in his works. So um, James James serves uh, well both purposes. He, he points out the problem of knowing uh, without the doing, and the doing. That uh, is purposeful, but even in knowing the right thing and doing something, it's not necessarily helpful. Because he, he points out that the demons even believe right things and they shudder, but that's not enough to save them. That's not the same thing as saving faith. The Jews knew God, they believed right things about God, but this wasn't knowing God, it wasn't relational knowing God. They certainly believed all that was required of the truth about who he is. And so James indictment is that believing something removed from doing it um, is worthless. He says, he, he goes, he uses the rebuke. It's foolishness. You foolish person that thinks that you can believe something without it actually coming to, to fruition in who you are and what you do. And so we're content enough sometimes to say, uh, something like, I believe the rope is secure. I think, uh, I think you can get across it. And, uh, We affirm right things about the ability of God to do something. Uh, We've studied the, uh, you know, the tension on the rope, and we're sure that it will hold a certain amount of weight, and uh, we know that the wheelbarrow tire is inflated to just the right amount, and then the certain alloy of the steel in the wheelbarrow or whatever, but short of our active putting our weight into that wheelbarrow, um, that belief is useless. It's, it's knowing right things without the activity of trusting them. And so um, James is not alone in making this problem, problematic distinction between separating what we believe or what we know to be true and it actually coming out in our, our deeds. And so um, Hebrews, which is the one that offers the description of what faith is and also says without faith, it's impossible to please God. From Hebrews, we also get chapter 11 of Hebrews, which is known as the hall of faith right? Which is, includes the list of people over and over who by faith have done something because of their trust of God, because of a promise that God had given, they acted on that. And so um, this might lead us to believe, well, then it's just about, you know, throwing my, my weight into the wheelbarrow and then just saying that's okay. But uh, this, is, this is somewhat deceptive because that sort of in, invites us to legalism, which is the second part of that, which is just doing things without faith. Also, can't save us. You know, in and, uh, and Stephen's re- um, rebuke, part of it was that he said, like, you, you Jews, you understand that you received the law by angels, but you didn't, you didn't keep the law, which is an interesting statement because the Jews uh, were famous for keeping the law. And the scribes, the Pharisees, knew how to keep the law. And so keeping the law there um, has to mean something beyond face value. Like, you'll miss it if you think it just means you didn't follow the list of rules that were given because they, they did. They followed the list of rules, and so you miss it if you believe that he's saying you, you were just totally disobedient. Now, um, that might invite us to think that, you know, we need to just follow all the rules as they're given. That way, we're acting on knowing that God is God, and we're following the list of rules. Therefore, we're doing everything in faith, and that's not true. So the question is, then what laws were they breaking, and what laws must we follow then to fulfill this? Well, this is... Um, Pretty simply found in Matthew chapter 22. Um, In Matthew 22, Jesus is uh, asked a question. Very simple. What's What's the greatest law? What's the one that most matters? What's the thing that's most important? What must we do if we fail at everything else? Do you know what his answer was? The greatest and first commandment is this. Love the Lord your God. Right? He, didn't repeat, he didn't repeat the Ten Commandments to them. He didn't find a specific thing. And then he went on, right? And he said, that, and the second is like it, right? Which is love others. So he has both there. And so what Jesus says, the most important thing that we must fulfill, that we must do, the one most important legalistic thing, if you want to think of it that way, is that we must love God and love others. And so then you have uh, maybe a different perspective on the problem of law following without law following. And the problem of doing without having faith, they were missing the knowing, which was the relationship, which is the loving God, right? And so this is where we get to the importance of circumcision. And uh, if you didn't, if you didn't, uh, we weren't here last week or you didn't remember, uh, this becomes uh, the, the most important aspect of what happens for us in faith. So circumcision was just a, a sign of belonging to the covenant. You could, you could observe the sign, but not be in the covenant. It was, it was, but it was a, it was an outward picture of what you were declaring your faith to be in. I'm following the covenant uh, because I believe that um, God will save me in doing so. And so it was just a, an outward sign, but it didn't mean that you um, belong necessarily. The same way today, you can be baptized, you can take communion, but not belong. Those are just signs. Those are declarations of you saying, you belong. But they can be empty if there's not something underneath them, something behind them. And the something underneath them and behind them is circumcision. Not circumcision in the flesh, but circumcision in the spirit of your heart, right? And so this this probably is uh, the most important aspect of how this whole thing gets resolved. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, tells us what will happen. So, uh, at the beginning, let me just rewind to give you some context. At Deuteronomy is, is Moses, again, repeating the law. That's what it means, the, the second giving of the law. Moses repeating the law to the Israelites, and he knows that they're going to break the law. He knows that they're going to mess the covenant up, and he says there's going to be another covenant coming. And when that covenant comes, and he's now speaking about that. So this is the context of what Moses is saying here in this verse. When, when the new covenant comes, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, that you will do what? Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may what? Live. This is what happens by the Holy Spirit for you that you cannot do for yourself. It's, it's, it's odd if you think about it, to command as a rule an affection, right? You can give rules to somebody as do this, don't do that, but to say love someone or to have affection for them, that's a weird thing to command if you think about it. And, uh, and so the problem is trying to obey the rules without the infect, uh, affection and, or, or trying to know the right things and believing that's the same thing as affection. And so you see that affection lies at the heart of both of these things. And the reason this is true is because actions follow affection. So you are required to do something. You must obey this. But the biggest part of it has already been solved for you. But it doesn't mean that you don't have to actually get in the wheelbarrow. It doesn't mean it doesn't cost anything. So um, I'm going to, hopefully by way of analogy, imperfectly give you um, what, what, the, what a life of faith with affections for God should look like. So, so just because um, you have a circumcised heart doesn't mean there won't be any trials or difficulties in following God in faith. You know this, yes? You know this, Yes. It's going to cost something. It's going to cost everything. But you have the problem of wrong or competing affections, always. And uh, this is pointed out over and over as the case of why we often fail. Jesus rebukes those who are doing right things because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Faith is required whenever God is made your highest priority. Um, it, It requires faith for you to act on the reality that God is, in any given situation, my highest affection, my highest priority. Because it requires you hating something else to put that first. Let me say that again real clear. To put God first in any given situation, in anything, requires the the rebuke or the the putting away of some other thing. And um, Jesus pretty much uh, makes this a simple case of love and hate. He uses the word hate. If anyone wants to follow me, he must, he, he goes to the example of family. He says he must, you must hate your father and, and mother. You must hate your children. No one uh, is worthy to follow me unless they hate all of these other things. And we're like, well, that's kind of strong language. But to love God means that we must hate everything else. And um, so in Luke chapter 12, uh, or excuse me, uh, Luke chapter 14, when Jesus says this, um, he clarifies then why he says it this way. This is not a, um, it's, it's not a post-calculation. It's not a mid-calculation. It is a, a pre-calculation, meaning before you ever enter into the idea of following Christ, you should know the cost. That's, that's a pretty simple way to say that. And he, he makes that um, clear by the example he gives afterwards. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own, his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on to say, which one of you wanting to build a tower would not first sit down and find out if he has the means to do that? He says, lest you get into the middle of building this tower, find out you don't have the means and the resources and not be able to complete it. He says, that kind of fool would be worthy of mockery because you would just have this, you know, incomplete project standing out there in the middle of everyone to see to the fact that you didn't count the cost first. He goes on to say, which one of you as a king, would, would go enter into battle without not calculating first whether or not the force that you have can meet the force that's around you. And if you find out that you don't have enough to meet that force, why would you not go early and send terms to them so that you can have a peaceful resolution? So he's saying, first, count the cost. The cost happens at the beginning, not in the middle, not at the end. Because what happens when you do it in the middle or the end is you enter a point of crisis and you give up. So he's saying that results in failure. So we, we count the cost at the beginning. Anyone who does not want to, who wants to be my disciple, he says this, must renounce all that he has, all that he has, all that you will have. And that's a, that's a, let's say, it's a categorical statement. It's a, uh, there's no wiggle room in that. It's not sufficient to just say, I believe you must get in the wheelbarrow and it will cost. You will risk everything. It's, it's not, I'll get in the wheelbarrow if there's a net. Do you see that? You must risk everything to have the reward of the faith. So Jesus points to all of the many competing affections in our lives. I just did a brainstorm of the ones that came to my head, of things that Jesus states get in the way of our affection, of putting God first. He started here with love of family, children, love of your own life, but he also rebukes our love of the world, our love of money, the things of the world. Love of the applause of men, love of places of honor, loving to be called teacher or somebody that's wise, loving to be looked at righteously, loving to be seen as a generous giving person, loving to be thought well of in crowds, loving to be heard praying, loving pleasure, loving being right in arguments, loving arguments in general. Uh, The list could go on and on. Those are just like some of the things that you, you, just think about some of the parables that Jesus told and some of the teachings that he said, and how we love those things which keeps us from loving God most and first. And so you have the problem of the competing affection. Even though God has enabled you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you fail to do so. Do you see this? And so Jesus puts us not in categories of preference, but in categories of master. He says, "He said, no one can serve two masters. Why? Because masters demand exclusivity. They don't request it, they don't hope for it, they require it. He says, you cannot serve two masters, why? Because you will love one and do what to the other? That means you will, you will serve one righteously and fully and, ne- and neglect the other. And if you choose to do one, you are, by necessity, neglecting the other. And so you have a picture then of what it means to, to hate something. Softening this can lead us to that mental game that we try to play, where we think, well, I love God most, and I'm just doing this other thing, but I don't love it more than God. But in that moment, guess what you're doing? You're loving it more than God. That affection has risen above the first place in your heart, and you're not acting then in faith. You're not trusting that God is better than whatever it is that you've chosen to do in that moment. I think we think of it like this. I like steak most. <laughs> right? Steak is my favorite. It's top of the order. I love steak. It's not my master, though. (laughs) I love steak, but if I can't have steak, I'll eat meatloaf, okay? I don't love meatloaf, okay? But in the absence of steak, I'll eat meatloaf. And in that order of affections there, there's no problem there because one doesn't demand exclusivity. But this is how we think of God. I, I love him most, and I just dabble in these other things, and those are okay. But that's not true. Those aren't Okay. Here's a much better analogy and a better way to think about it. I'm a vegetarian. Lord help those who are lost in vegetarianism. (laughs) I'm a vegetarian. I must, can I eat meat? No, I can't because to eat meat would negate my first and highest value that I'm a vegetarian. It would even preclude some things that I might buy or, or wear, right? And so you can see that my highest priority being vegetarianism might flow into these other areas, but it certainly applies to what it is that I eat. And it's exclusive in the way of what I can eat and what I cannot eat, right? And if I were to just dabble in steak one day, you'd be like, you're not a vegetarian. You're eating meat. Do you see the problem there? It's not a preference. It's exclusivity that God is after. So again, Lord, help those who don't eat meat. I'm sorry. They're called the weaker brother. So in the case of vegetarians and food, this only applies to maybe a limited scope. And the problem is that we have limited the scope to such a, a narrow place. Well, it's only spiritual things. As long as I spiritually know that God is the best, it doesn't really affect anything that I do. And then you have the problem that we started with, which is declaring a belief in something, but it not coming out in anything you do. And th- that's where that originates from. Because you've, you've made it a mental ascent, and it's not faith. When we relegate love-hate to spiritual things, saying, well, I don't have any gods above God, this leaves you to live however you want. And uh, a useful analogy would be more in the realm of of, uh, marriage and uh, how affections result in actions or how actions without affections are useless or how blind devotion without relationship are useless. So I want to give a couple of examples of how messed up affections or wrongly placed things can bring us to the wrong place with God as well. So um, does my wife have to believe objectively that I'm the most attractive man alive? Now it's true in my case, but for you it might not be. Does she have to believe that I'm the most attractive man alive to marry me? No. But when she does, and she marries me, she must treat me like I am the most attractive man alive. Because if she didn't, it would negate the, the reality that she put me first in that decision. Is that true? Yeah? If, if she did not, and she was just, you know, always telling me how attractive all these other guys were, not only would they be incredibly insecure, but um, the decision to be um, faithful um, to her because of that would be would difficult, and it would also be difficult for her to be faithful to me. So the reason why she's faithful in our relationship, I'm assuming now, but I'll make some assumptions, right? The reason why she loves me is not because of the objective reality, but because there is an affection there. Because she does have love for me. And it doesn't matter that I'm not the most attractive man on the face of the planet, but her actions of of faithfulness follow her affection for me as as a human being, right? She, she loves who I am and I love who she is. And so all of the other things that flow from that aren't just relegated to the realm of romance. All of the decisions that she does and that I do reflect the reality that we are committed in a relationship and she is my highest affection for relational aspect. Now, don't apply that particular thing to God. I'm not saying she's above God. I'm saying when, when we do, when we have sacrifices or we prioritize different things, different um, ways that we go about living life, those all reflect the, the value that's at the top. And those are going to necessarily come out in the way that she acts. She can't just declare that she's mar- married to me and, and uh, then go ha- act some other way, right? So that is the second problem, which is affectionless actions which is if she didn't love me at all, but then try to obey all of the same kinds of things that come out of her affection for me. Like you just try to fulfill all the rules of what it is to be married and to love one another without affection, no love, just trying to do all the things that flow naturally, then you would be in blind legalism and it would be absolute slavery and you would hate it and you would hate that person. And this is the problem again of serving God without loving him. You begin to resent him and you hate him. He's a, he's a, he's a, a master with no, with no mercy because you can't fulfill all the laws. And so affectionless action is also useless, but then you can also have relationshipless devotion. I mean, think of somebody that's like a crazy, obsessive fan of some celebrity, right? Like Elvis or something, you know? So, somebody that is just obsessively believes that, um, you know, Elvis is someday, he's still alive somewhere out there, and he's going to marry them. And so they live their lives in a way that is devoted to this person that doesn't actually know they exist, right? They, 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 they you know, maybe they got pictures of him hanging up, and, you know, maybe they changed their name to Presley or something like that. There's, there's all this devotion, but there's no relationship there, right? And this is, this is the futility of religious action without actually knowing who God is. They make all kinds of decisions that, that are devoted to someone who is already married or has no relationship with them or awareness of their existence. And the last one is actionless, affectionless belief. Imagine somebody who has a, a whirlwind romance and they marry somebody in that chapel of love in Vegas or something like that. And then they, they go back home to their life, and they carry on with their life as though nothing had ever happened. They weren't actually married. They just never contacted that person again, never, never did anything that reflected there was a commitment there at a chapel in Vegas or whatever, right? And, and so you have, um, it's devoid of everything. And, and that one seems like the most far-fetched, but it's actually the most common one. Because most people that profess faith and come to church every week are doing so based on the fact that that one time, way back when they were a kid, they had an emotional flutter in their heart, and they use that as the grounds of their faith. I'm not saying that your faith is devoid of that, but that's not the grounds of it, and that's not the grounds of your salvation. Our greatest affections move us to action So what the Spirit accomplishes actually in drawing us and circumcising our hearts is to put things right for us, but it doesn't do things for us. You still are competing with all of the other affections of the world. And the question is, at any given moment, what's winning out? Is your faith in God winning out? Or are you believing something else is better in that moment? And so we struggle through this and we stumble and we fall. But here's where I think we find ourselves sort of all over the map this morning either trying to live off knowing right things, but that's empty because there's nothing in your heart for them. You believe right things about God. You, you know lots of scripture. You know God is one you do well, but there's no affection underneath that. Some of you are living off doing things that are right, but have no affection. You know that God would want you to not do this, and he probably wants you to do that, And so as much as you can, as as convenient as it can be for you, you try to do the right things. But again, there's no affection behind that. And so it doesn't really motivate any of your actions. It's just sort of like a guilt that floats in the back somewhere. Some of us have never had any affection and we're never presented with anything other than the mental assent that God is real. If you believe that God is real, then he saved you. that's insufficient altogether. And some of us just struggle with competing affections, but they're consistently winning out. So I want to end this morning with a story of John chapter 12, of one who um, loved much, who gave much, and it cost much. So in uh, John chapter 12, Jesus is drawing to the end of his ministry, the end of his life. John's written chronologically. And just before he's uh, on his way back into Jerusalem, um, just before he has the triumphal entry, he's coming through Bethany. So in the beginning of chapter 12 of John, it says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. If you missed the story of Lazarus, right, he was the guy that died. And uh, Mary and Martha, brothers, is uh, their sister, and uh, Jesus had resurrected him. But as he's coming back through Bethany, the place where he had raised Lazarus, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, and he wiped and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But but Judas Iscariot was one of his disciples, the one who was going to betray him. And he said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said, he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was into it. But Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Mary has this extravagant act of service that sounds just, I mean, uh, it is recorded in uh, three gospels, and the same story happens. We find different things out about the perfume and who it is and the different reactions of people, and uh, we we miss the magnitude of all that happens here because of, uh, mostly because of Judas' reaction. But the perfume here is not just very costly, but it's likely um, her inheritance, the idea that we miss here is that Lazarus is one who is um, the, the provider of the family. And, and Mary and Martha live with him. And so that means Mary's not uh, married. She doesn't have anybody else to provide for her. And she'd already experienced very recently that provider dying. Like literally, Lazarus was dead, remember? And she's distraught. And they go back and forth about the resurrection. But Now now Lazarus is alive again and she has possession of one thing that likely represents her only livelihood. The cost of this this, um, perfume is estimated at like a year's wages today, okay? A year's wages today and this would have been all that she would have had when Lazarus dies again. And what she does is she, it's a different, Gospels recorded differently, but that she had broken the box or she at least broke it open. It's irretrievable that way and she pours the whole thing out. She spends Everything to anoint Christ, she doesn't keep any reserve. Like, what happens if I'm wrong? What if what if I what if this doesn't work out? What am I going to do when Lazarus dies again? What who's going to provide for me? She risks everything, she spends everything to, to, to serve Jesus, and she does it out of love. She anoints him, it's for his burial. Um, Jesus declares as much, she knew that the box would have meant her livelihood in the future and she spends everything, perhaps even a dowry if she was going to be married someday. And so the parables that we get of Jesus telling us what the treasure, of the field, treasure in the field is like or the pearl of great price tell us this, what is the cost? What is the cost of faith? It's, it costs everything. But it's, it's motivated from love and affection that you would give everything to love God. So this morning, I, I, uh, I wanted us to retrack with the basics of where we are as Christians and what does it mean. I, you're not here this morning, and if you are, just because you think it's the right thing to do, but it's void of affection or void of knowing God in relationship. And you, like, my prayer is that this morning, the Spirit would touch your heart and open your heart that you might know and love God. And if you find that, like me, like the flame is flickering dim, and maybe you were real motivated once, and it was a lot easier to put these other competing affections lower than God, that He would rekindle a passion and a flame for Him. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I pray for those that. um,